Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Style That Finds Us podcast. We are very excited to have Ippolita Rostano, who is an artist and founder of her eponymous fine jewelry line, Ippolita. And she is the co-founder of Artemis, which is a website that brings old world Italian craftsmanship right to your door. She is from Florence, Italy, Firenze, and she has always been inspired by the richness and simplicity of Italian culture. From her body imprinting, sculpture, stone cutting, and faceting techniques, the depth of craftsmanship is poured into each piece, and she produces a work of art with a beautiful story, with every single thing that she creates. The brand recently celebrated their 20th anniversary. Congratulations on that. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So let's start by, you have had this incredible career coming from Florence and then coming to Brooklyn. Your apartment is Fabulous. So jealous. I would love, we need to come and live there with you. Do you want to walk us through? How did you, did you get here? Were you always an artist? How did you create your jewelry brand? What's your story? Yes. It's a very accidental story. Uh, (laughs) It wasn't planned to actually unfold the way it did. I went to art school. I was, so as you said, I, I was born and I grew up in Florence and I went to art school And it was an extremely traditional art school. We learned uh, sculpture and drawing, and uh, I also studied ceramics. So it was very craft-oriented. It was not about ideas. It was about technique. So they were not interested in the least about your ideas about art, about, you know, your vision for what you wanted to do once you left school. They were really there to teach you how to use the tools as an extension of your hands. And that discipline of learning how to work with your hands and how to be nimble around all the unexpected things that happen when you're actually working with raw materials was a fundamental experience that allowed me to build my business. In retrospect, I realize now because the nimbleness that you have to develop around You know, when you're sculpting a piece of marble and you think your shape is going to be an X way and then, you know, half of it falls off. (laughs) And you're like, okay, let me rethink this. And and then I came to the United States without a plan, kind of. I I didn't really have a plan of what I was going to do. And I ended up going to Los Angeles first. Uh, I went to university. I went to college here and I studied English literature. Then I had a detour uh, (laughs) and had a dance group (laughs) for a while. (laughs) I had studied dance throughout my whole youth. And I was very interested in dance theater, like where the nexus between literature and, you know, and art and dance and performance came together. But L.A. was not the place to do it. So I moved the group to New York. Mm -hmm. And then after about a year or so, the group kind of disbanded. So then I thought, okay, well then, then what, you know, what, what should I do next? You know, if I, if I can't uh, dance and now I'm in New York, uh, what do I do next? And I said, well, let me get back to, let me get back into craft, but you know, it being New York, you know, everything's expensive and I couldn't afford a, a, an art studio. So I said, well, let me get a jeweler's bench, you know, and I'll start small because at least I'll, I'll get my hands back in practice and, you know, it's the same tools just in miniature. 
And I really basically didn't even have a plan. Yeah. (laughs) So I just started making some jewelry and I thought, oh, this is uh, a lot more interesting and fun than I thought. I had a lot of craft background. And even in the years that I had been in the United States, I had done a lot of printmaking and I had kept myself sort of up on my skills. Mm -hmm. Once I uh, started making jewelry, I said, wait a second, let me look around. If I'm actually going to do this, let me see what's out there and, you know, what are other people doing? And, And I really did not have any familiarity with the world of fashion. I had been in a completely different space and all my interests sort of revolved around different areas of of artistic practice. So therefore I started looking around, you know, it being New York, it was very interesting because you have stores like Bergdorf Goodman, which don't exist in Europe, meaning multi-brand stores that carry very fashion forward designers, you know, small collections of a lot of fashion forward designers concentrated on their own particular vision, you know, and that there's not a huge amount of contamination at that level. Right. You know, and then if you, as you go down, you know, more mass market stores have more contamination and you see, but it was very interesting to see the entire chain, you know, that you have both the pinnacle of where the idea starts and then you can see how it, you know, filters through the culture and, mm-hmm. and the style and the commerce aspect of it. And so I looked around and there was super high end fine jewelry, you know, diamonds and, you know, very like thousands of you know, fancy formal stuff. And then there was costume jewelry. It was a big costume jewelry moment at that time. So I was like, but, you know, since I came from Europe, there you have one of the fundamental sort of ethos of the cultures, fewer, better things. Right. We love so that. the idea is to really buy fewer uh, things that are made out of real materials and they last a lifetime. So even if you're young, you invest from the get-go on a few things that you know you're going to have forever. Right. Uh, especially in the jewelry realm. Where is that jewelry? You know, the, the jewelry for, you know, real people, you know, that actually have to make a living, have to work. You know, you're not going to go home and change your jewelry, you know, at you know, midday. I was like, oh, that, that's kind of interesting, you know, that, that there's. Uh, so if I were to make something that I would want to wear, you know, that I feel is relevant to my life, you know, a little more fashionable. One thing that was extremely clear to me from the get-go was that jewelry didn't have a feminine aesthetic. You know, this is not sexy. You know, this jewelry, it looks so well made that it looks like it's actually machine made. Mm -hmm. And you're thinking like, why is that? Not to say anything bad about Cartier or, you know, the famous brands, but they go after a very male aesthetic. Because the purchaser of jewelry had always been a man. So the aesthetic aligned with the purchaser, not with the consumer. Wow. I felt like I looked at the jewelry and I said, I don't even have to try that on. I can tell it's uncomfortable. And it's not really made for a woman, you know, for how women live and want to be. And, and, and I was also kind of put off by the idea of brands building brand icons as opposed to, you know, building beautiful jewelry. And that women would want to wear and feel beautiful in as opposed to being sort of a walking advertisement for a different for a brand. 
So anyway, that's a, another long way of saying that I just started making my own jewelry. There's a huge distinction between crafty and crafted. I wanted it to look handmade because it's so intensely handmade that it should look handmade. I mean, you should see all the training and all the thoughtfulness and all the knowledge of the hands that goes into making things should be appreciable, you know, should be uh, visible, but not look crafty. So here I was, you know, making, you know, a few pieces. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, I'm going to just take them to Bergdorf. The first pieces I did were a combination of things that I felt were really wearable Mm -hmm. and huge gold pectorals (laughs) that were more sculptures and not, not really jewelry. Because I didn't know anything about anything, I just literally walked to the store with my 12 things and, and said, can I talk to somebody? Can I show my jewelry to somebody? Right. You know, and they said, well, that's not really how it's done. <laughs> but since you're here, let me see if I can find somebody. Oh, good. The fashion director of the store came down and she said, well, look, uh, the jewelry buyer is not here, but, you know, since you're here, let me just take a look. Mm-hmm. And she said, oh, my God, this stuff is amazing. You know what? This is not jewelry. We can't sell it, but uh, I'll put it in the window. I think it's really cool. So if you want to leave it, I'll put it in the window. She put it in the window and I kind of walked away thinking, this is not serious. You know, this is like this isn't, you know, right. this isn't going to work. Then I got a call two days later saying, we sold a couple of your pieces from the window. Who are you? And where's the rest of your line? I love it. I love it so much. And so that's how I started. I often, you know, thinking back on that period, think, oh my God, like the likelihood of that working out. It was so serendipitous the way it happened. And it's very much tied to a certain uh, era. You know, the the merchants and the people who were working in the store at that time, A, had the knowledge and B, took the time to develop talent. Right. You know, they really would sit there and say, this earring is really nice, but maybe you should make it a little longer or this one is lovely and maybe you should do, you know, and you're like, okay, you know, go home, you fix it and then you bring it back. And I literally started with 12 pieces. Right. Then accessories become a huge deal mm-hmm. and handbags that cost $100 now cost $1,200. It and shoes that used to cost $100 now cost $700. Wow. All of a sudden, my jewelry, which was designed for women and looked very fashionable, even though it was fine, mm-hmm. became an either or proposition. And I was the only person in that space. And in fact, they, for years, didn't know where to put me. They kept moving me because there was, there was nobody around me. So I didn't really fit in the fine jewelry because it was too fashion forward for the fine jewelry area. It was too uh, fine for the costume jewelry area. And so I was literally in the, in the corridor, <laughs> in the vitrine in the corridor for like five years. And then, you know, slowly the world of fashion fine jewelry kind of grew up around me and then it became an entire room. 
my line from, I mean, from the very first day has always been a self-purchase line. Okay. It was designed like that. You know, it was purposefully right, designed right, like right. that. Meaning I, I talk to women. I'm designing for women and right. women are my customers. Right. This is somebody who walks in, who sees a necklace and says, who's that brand? I can't pronounce it, but I recognize that uh, necklace as something that I want that's significant right. to me. Right. And I can tell I'm going to love it forever and I'm going to buy it. And it's Tuesday and it's not my birthday. Right. You know, it's this feeling of empowerment about making your own choices. I was at the right place at the right time. And Bergdorf was the point of reference for a lot of stores across the United States. Yes. When they were thinking, you know, okay, who do we invest in next? What do we do next? Oh, there's this unpronounceable brand. <laughs> you should, but it does very well. <laughs> you should buy Polita. And that's what, that's what happened. I have a, a, a design motto, which is also a business motto, which is cool enough to covet and classic enough to keep. Oh, that's Ooh. great. I love that. And it's recognizable but in a good way. It's not like a, a logo type thing or anything, but it all has the same feel. So, you know, you can recognize it in other women and you can also recognize it when you go back later. It's not like, well, what, this is so different. So Delia was on the buying team at Barney's. She started in apothecary, then ready to wear, and then emerging designer jewelry. So now what she does a lot of times is she works with young brands to help them navigate that space because she saw, you know, she'll say, whoa, we've got to edit down this collection. You know, what is your aesthetic? What is your price range? You know, they're just all over the place trying to figure out with way too much stuff. Also, as a wardrobe consultant for women in their closets, I'm constantly talking about paring down, making investment choices, bringing in jewelry that can be worn. You can wear like the earrings you have. I have those earrings too. You know, you can wear it with jeans and a tee. Mm -hmm. You can wear it with a little little black dress and a great bag and super high stiletto heels and feel fabulous either way. So it's a great piece that you can also travel with. You know, it's really a part of this diverse wardrobe, but also sort of is your style throw on the scarf and this whole thing is this I'm all about accessories right it's like a it's like building an art collection and also you know like when she was at Barney's I I feel like you know someone would bring their collection and then it was like okay but we're looking for hoops right now what you need to make us a hoop you know like what that's not who I am you know so they kind of are dictated by the trends it seems like yes yes uh I had that at the beginning they told me women don't like bangles (laughs) Oh, wow. <laughs> and I was like, well, I, I like bangles. I like bangles. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm going to make bangles. Even. <laughs> I love bangles. There's nothing better. And then collecting them, right? I know. Them. Yeah. And then, you know, skip to 20 years later and my entire business is built on bangles. <laughs> right, right. And they're so fabulous. I mean, they're just beautiful. Have you ever considered starting your own podcast or do you already have one? We recently switched to the podcast hosting platform, Anchor. Anchor is free. They have creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It is truly everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started.
So tell us about Artemis. I was going back and forth from Italy. I come from Florence from the Renaissance on, uh, one of the hubs of craft. Yes. And art in general. And when you grow up there, you really absorb that. It's like a subcutaneous thing. Like you just absorb it. The art school was uh, in a part of town called Oltrarno, which was the part of town where all of the uh, artisans were concentrated. So as I was going back every year, I would see more and more shops close. And I kept saying to my friends, what happened to the carver, you know, that had been there for 800 oh, years? No. And what happened to the ceramicist? And what happened to the decorator? And what happened to the painter that was over there? And remember the guy who used to make, you know, and, you know, and they were like, yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess, I guess. you know, but they weren't like urgently feeling the loss right. of these craftsmen. Right. Being a craft person and knowing the amount of time and dedication that it takes. If these crafts disappear, there is going to be no Italy. There is going to be no cultural fabric to, you know, to speak of. I became kind of obsessed with this problem. And I started going to Italy more frequently and trying to engage. I literally talked to absolutely anybody and everybody who would listen at every level of government and, and culture and got absolutely nowhere. I know there's a customer for these beautiful, incredibly handcrafted things. If there were just a way to connect the consumer to the maker. Right. I have to either do something about it or I have to stop talking about it because I'm going to go crazy otherwise. (laughs) So I said, I'm going to take a leave of absence from Ippolita. I'm going to move to Italy and I'm going to do it, you know, American style, meaning I'm going to fundraise. I'm going to uh, build a marketplace website to aggregate all of these artisans. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to create a, a direct link to the end consumer. So we decided to give it a home decor umbrella. I mean, that was like the first big choice uh, because how do you bring all of these crafts together in under one umbrella? So it needed a narrative. Uh, So I decided that home was the thing that could most easily become the vessel. Sure. The storytelling vessel. So then I went literally door to door all over Italy because I felt that it was very important to have a representation, you know, of, of all the crafts and not just Murano glass and, you know, right. the things that everybody right. knows, you know, right. and, and then also because the craft is extremely tied to the territory, you know, that there's a reason yeah, that sure. that ceramic, a type of ceramic comes from there because there's a volcano nearby that, you know, makes clay that's black and, you know, and so on and so forth, you know, like, and from a storytelling perspective, that was very interesting. So we started with 60 and we now have 1200. Oh, wow. So it has grown tremendously and really has become the go-to, you know, resource for everything Italian, you know, everything, everything beautiful made in Italy is Artemis.com. Artemest is sort of a arti e mestieri, so it's like arts and crafts put together. So I wanted it to be intrinsically Italian and yet very understandable and very user friendly. So the technology had to be super up to snuff. 
And of course, our best customers are interior decorators because they understand what they're looking at. You know, they understand the quality, they understand, you know, and it was a giant gamble because part of the uh, idea was that you don't want to burden these artisans who are already struggling with inventory and say, you know, make me, you know, five tables if you have no idea, you know, whether you could sell them. Right. Everything was custom made. You know, and it, you know, at the beginning, I kept wanting to give my skills away, you know, meaning I was trying to find somebody to do this that already did it, you know, saying, I know how to do it. And I understand the American market. I can put my services at your disposal. Who can I give this to? Because, you know, I, I thought I can't do this from scratch because it's like so gigantic an undertaking. But ultimately, I couldn't find anybody, you know, and I was like, I don't understand why this doesn't exist. Whenever I went to France, I would always collect Santon, you know, especially if I was in the Provence region, you know, from the artisans there and everything. But let's say you're in Italy. You want to have something, a real treasure from Italy. First of all, getting it back to America is kind of a pain. Second of all, you wouldn't even know really where to look. Right. So now and people who just obsess with Italy, which pretty much the whole the rest of the world is, you know, now they have this site they can go on, even if they're not an interior decorator and look and understand. I think it's so great when this world is all about mass production of everything and, you know, restoration hardware and all that. There's nothing wrong with those things, but to actually get something that somebody made specifically in one region, in one country of the world is just remarkable. I think you you are remarkable. Yes. And for me, it was really important to put the artisan front and center. So you know who makes it. And if you want it slightly different, you can get it made slightly different because in any case, they're making it for you. So it doesn't really. So the whole idea of ready-made is, uh, I don't want to say it's a foreign concept, but it's not you know, there, there's kind of no economy of scale, meaning they're going to make one for you anyway. So if you want it slightly different, you should get it slightly different because it's being made for you. When I was trying to recruit the artisans at the beginning, when Artemis didn't exist, and I was trying to say, so envision, you know, <laughs> a, a virtual, you know, marketplace where your story, you know, and they, they just like, they were like shaking their heads and they're like, that they were saying, the likelihood that you'll be able to sell this beautiful thing that I've made with love and, you know, right, right. and care right. you know, to somebody who is on, on the other side of the world is like, right. it's not happening. No, you know? no, absolutely. And is it true, like in Italy and, you know, this idea for constant newness and it needs to be ready right away and it's cheapened down by the thing. So like to me, Italian artisans, it wouldn't have to happen so fast. It would be more very thoughtful process and very much. Well, that's the, that was part of the gamble. Exactly. When people are so used to having a drone drop something on your head, you know, five minutes after, <laughs> you know, like right. how, how likely is it that they're going to wait, you know, two right. months to receive something. Right. But I think that partially we were lucky because in the home arena, people are a little more used to it. Like if you right. order a couch, Sure. You know, you're going to wait six weeks Every, for year right. two, you know, so I think that that facilitated a little bit. I'm just honestly, I'm like truly amazed at uh, the response. You know, the response has been so positive and people understand it. Well, yeah, hopefully as we all spread the message of better and less and being thoughtful with your purchases and everything, then everything we own 
will have meaning, you know, it won't be disposable. Right. Exactly. I mean, and uh, to me, like this philosophy, which is uh, very central to the Italian culture in general, you know, there's very little waste. Our planet and our resources are finite. Right. Exactly. It's true. And then what about the Andy Warhol thought of going back to high school days and the trade? You have to know the rules before you can break them. Do you feel like that's what happened with your jewelry? I wouldn't know. I wouldn't say that I knew the rules. Okay. <laughs> I was coming at it from, a, you know, such a, such a manual labor perspective. Right. I do think that uh, one of the things that I have learned, you can't just be talented and you can't just be lucky and you can't just be at the right place at the right time. All of those things have to come together and that the talent of entrepreneurship is recognizing when those things are aligning. Mm. You know, like you, ha- you can never, you have to always be vigilant. Uh, and, I, and I find that that never goes away. You know, like you can never take anything for granted. You know, that, that's the other thing. Is. And starting a business from scratch is very useful in that, in that sense because you never forget, you know, there was a time when I was right. you know, writing the invoice and making the piece and shipping it at UPS. And, right. and, that, and I feel like that was not very long ago. Okay. And you could... You can and it be- could come again. You never know. And it's yeah, exactly. now and it pivoted during COVID and now everybody's having to sort of pivot again quickly because things are starting back up so fast. You know, it's like, whoa, you know, I had that figured out. Now I've got to go back or go forward to yet another plan. I've yeah. got to get the stuff people want it now and I can't get it from factories or whatever. So to do that. Okay. We have a lot of designers that listen to our podcast and as a brand consultant and formerly working on the buying team, this aesthetic thing and being creative, I want to go dive a little bit deeper into creating your aesthetic, your unique aesthetic to your brand, because people... They don't want to be reeled in. They're creative. They have all these ideas. They don't want to get bored and say, well, now I can't grow because I just have to keep. So how can you still be creative with the constraints of one aesthetic? Well, if you have the uh, luxury of having uh, lasted, let's say, for five years or so, you have a core vocabulary. And the thing is that it's not that I'm impervious to trends. Like I, trends are also something that matter. And uh, I often go to trend presentations where they show you, you know, the, the people who in the fashion industry are the furthest ahead are the textile mills because their lead times are so long. So they're doing color studies and they're doing, you know, textile studies so far ahead and it has nothing to do with anything I do really, but I find it very, very useful and very interesting because you think, Oh, like if acid colors all of a sudden are going to be a thing, you know, acid green and, and and clothes are going to start showing up, you know, in two years that are like this, it starts your mind, you know, sort of going in a completely different direction. And you have to say, but how does that relate to me? You know, like, okay, I, I see that there are these trends happening, but what does that mean to me? It's a, it's a constant editing process, you know, and of course I develop, you know, a thousand things and I adopt 
you know, right. 10. Right. So, and, I mean, and it's really that dramatic, you know, like to understand what 10 you really feel like are the right 10, you have to do a thousand. Right. So this, uh, you know, the discipline around editing is something that never goes away. And if you have to practice something, that's what you should practice. You shouldn't ever uh, reel yourself in, you know, because you don't, you yourself don't know. Right. You know, like you right. have to have the ability to be able to have a lot of ideas developed, a lot of directions explored so that you can say, this is meaningful. This is maybe less meaningful, you know? I like that a lot. Yeah. That's a great answer. I wish that I missed that old world buyer brand relationship. I kind of got it because my boss, Sarah Blair, she had been at Barney's for 20 years and she was like, a, she is a true merchant where she would sit across the table from you and really help you think and design and evolve and grow your brand. But I feel like I was at Barney's from 2014 to 2018. So by the time I got there, unfortunately, I think retail had changed so much that it wasn't really like that so much anymore. Yeah. No, I mean, the, the thing is that I miss it too. Uh, and I must say that sometimes I'm so dismayed when you realize that retail is uh, real estate. You know, they're, they're talking to you about productivity per square inch yep. and per square foot. You know, in jewelry, it's per square inch. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. But, uh, and you're like, what does that have to do with how beautiful my earrings are? You know? right, right. But at the same time, I also feel like there's sort of no use crying over spilt milk. And like, what is a, my role in yep. changing things if I want to change things and where can I affect change in a positive way in the, the new order of things. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, uh, I'm very much about education uh, in all aspects of art and commerce. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just sort of as a, as a citizen, you know, as a should never sort of miss out on an opportunity to exercise their civic duty. Right. Yes. You know? So, you know, if you see something that doesn't make sense, you should call it out, you know, yeah. and should, uh, I mean, I'm, you know, sort of in a, in a friendly sort of way, I'm always having these discussions with the buyers, you know, you know, because it's like, you know, what does this have to do with anything? You know, you know, like talk about the collections at all. All we talked about was our sell through rate, you know, know. and at the same time, you kind of have to shrug your shoulders and say, well, I have an opportunity to have a direct relationship with the, with my ultimate consumer. And I'm going to put more effort there. And, you know, you can only control the things you can control. Right. Absolutely. And now you have a voice that more people would listen to after 25 years of your amazing brand, Ipolita, a young person coming out, you know, she's just excited that someone picked her up. Right. So, we're lucky to have someone like you as a leader in the field to, to voice these things that truly don't make sense. Yeah, no, the thing is that you, you have to take advantage, you know, whatever the opportunity is that opens up, you know, maybe it wasn't the exact one you thought was going right, to open, up right. you, but you have to take advantage of it, sort of nudge it along because you never know exactly what combination of things, you know, sometimes you think back and you think, 
if I hadn't met that one person oh, that yeah. day, you know, my life would have gone in a completely different direction. Right. Yes. Absolutely. You just never know. So I think that, you know, being persistent, vigilant about, you know, when opportunities are aligning, you know, yes. and then also never losing enthusiasm. I'm interested in the, th- in, you know, in art and craft because I believe that they are fundamental to our experience of life. Yeah. Uh, Sure. And no one is going to ever shake that <laughs> from me. Right. And uh, if there's kind of one thing that I've learned from the making of it is I am relatively impervious to negative trends in the world because right. I know for a fact that I know how to make something yeah. <laughs> like things can come and go and things can change, but nobody can take away from me the fact that I know how to make something. Right. You know, I'm the handyman in my house, you know, like if, you know, if the plumbing breaks, if something happens, you know, like you study the problem, you know, you understand the mechanics of it. And, you know, if it's figure outable, you can figure it out. Right. If you enjoy that process and you see how easily it is to transfer it to other areas of your work, then you think, well, then we can get people to vote. And we can get, you know, democracy to work and we can get bigger things to happen if we have this uh, sort of interior inside certainty that you can own change. Yeah. things. Right. Right. Exactly. Even one person. Oh, my gosh. We could literally talk to you all day. You are phenomenal. And we hopefully this is only the beginning of a partnership and supporting you and your incredible company. So thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. Exactly. Thank you so much. Going to check out Artemis. I know. So tell us where can people find you? What's next for you? Well, of course, in the middle of the pandemic, we opened a store in Chicago, an equality oh. store in Chicago. <laughs> Amazing! And uh, yes, that was another uh, sort of a, one of those instances where you just say, "Well, either the world's going to fall apart or it's going to continue." Yeah, <laughs> right, right. And I'm going to take the I'm going to take the point of view that it's going to continue. Right. Yes, so. for sure. So I have a store on Madison Avenue. I have a store in Chicago. We're opening a store in Milano starting oh. in October. We have so, great. Yes. Oh my we God. Love we love that. So you'll have to come to Italy. And then, of course, we are widely distributed in the United States. Ippolita.com is where you can find everything. So that's where everyone should. Thank you for tuning into this episode on the Style That Binds Us podcast. If you like this podcast, make sure to tell a friend and subscribe. You can be a part of growing with us. Also, do you know about our weekly newsletter? You'll get access to exclusive content in our newsletter that we don't post anywhere else. Our newsletter comes out every Tuesday with the exception of the third Thursday of the month for Allison's special Celebrating Life After 40 edition. Head to the bottom of the Style That Binds Us website to subscribe.